This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison, edited by Kate Meissner. The Sentences That Create Us is a groundbreaking anthology that provides a means for incarcerated writers to launch their work into the world. Published in cooperation with PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program, the essays included in the book offer pragmatic advice and comprehensive resources that writers can grow with, inside and outside the walls. Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, said of the book, There are millions of stories locked behind bars, along with the millions of people our nation has caged. This astonishing book has the power to set those stories free. The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison, edited by Kate Meissner, out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. One year into the pandemic, guest host Astra Taylor interviewed Achal Prabala, coordinator of Access IBSA, which campaigns for access to medicines in India, Brazil, and South Africa. At that point, there were already multiple highly effective vaccines and a growing movement fighting for free, universal access. As Prabala warned in that episode, the fact that the coronavirus rapidly mutates made it imperative that the vaccine be released worldwide on the basis of need, not ability to pay. Now, one year since our last interview, Astra reconnected with Prabala. Delta, Omicron, and the new Omicron variant, BA2, have proven advocates, including Prabala, depressingly correct. Omicron and its variations, Prabala explains, have changed the COVID game because only mRNA vaccines are truly effective against the now-dominant strains of the disease. But most people of the world, including people in India where Prabala lives, are being denied access to these life-saving medicines due to intellectual property constraints on both the drugs themselves and the technologies needed to make them. Intellectual property constraints upheld as sacrosanct by Big Pharma, their allies in government and academia, and billionaire Bill Gates, who used his considerable influence early on in the pandemic to block researchers at Oxford University from putting their vaccine in the public domain. Though elected officials, including President Biden and the bureaucrats at the WTO, have paid some lip service to the need to temporarily waive some monopoly rights to assist poorer countries, in practice, even these really limited reforms are being stymied, as we know from WTO documents leaked shortly after this interview was recorded. And activists are currently debating how to respond to a proposed multilateral solution that falls far short of what the crisis requires. Meanwhile, sensible solutions to increase global vaccine manufacturing capacity are being sabotaged and sidelined. As Prabala explains, this is capitalist imperialism masquerading as public health policy. 
As was the case last year, there is only one sensible solution. We need to adopt an international approach, decommodify life-saving medicines, and invest in global public health. And it turns out that you, listening to this podcast right now, you can do something to help. Please join a coalition of students, public health activists, and global solidarity activists to pressure Moderna to share their technology. On the day of Moderna's annual shareholder meeting, April 28th, this coalition, led by Justices Global and Boston DSA, will challenge Moderna's profiteering at their headquarters in Cambridge with hundreds in person and thousands across the country. There will be virtual ways to get involved, and if you live anywhere near Boston, please make a plan to show up in person. Either way, sign up at bit.ly.com slash Moderna Action. That's bit.ly.com slash Moderna Action. I will include that link in the show notes. Internationalism must be this key ethical and political principle for the American left, so please get involved in the fight for global vaccine justice. Also briefly, and I know this is a little bit less important than global vaccine justice, but please also support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. A contribution of any amount at all gets you access to our wonderful weekly newsletter by email. If you love The Dig's in-depth analysis and want more to read, listen to, and watch on the subjects we discuss here on the podcast, this is for you. Even $1 a month and it's yours. Contribute $10 a month or more and we will send you a gift in the mail, a book or books, a Dig mug, or a Dig tote bag. They look good, folks. But really and truly, the reason I would like you to consider giving is because we decided to fund this podcast using an experimental model. Instead of paywalling bonus episodes to coerce you into donating, we wanted to see if we could instead keep every episode free for everyone, regardless of their ability to pay, by just asking you nicely, like I'm doing now, for a contribution. And amazingly, it has worked out well, allowing me to do this podcast full-time, to pay guest hosts like Astra, which gives me a little breathing room, and plus Astra is great, and also to pay everyone else who helps out in the show and to pay them well. So if you haven't contributed yet, but you are a big fan of this podcast and you can afford to contribute, please do so now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. It really does mean a lot and even a small amount helps a ton. Okay, here's a Chal Prabala, a longtime public health activist, starting in South Africa, where he worked for the country's largest trade union federation. He now lives in India and runs the Access IBSA project, which campaigns for access to medicines in India, Brazil, and South Africa. In addition to research, advocacy, and writing, he is currently working on two things, access to coronavirus vaccines and a documentary on the global movement for access to life-saving medicines, from AIDS in South Africa at the turn of the century to the pandemic today. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer, and, of course, the Diggs' go-to guest host. She is the director of multiple documentaries, including What is Democracy? and her latest book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. She also co-founded the Debt Collective, a union for debtors.
Michelle Porbala, welcome to The Dig. Thank you, Astra. Okay, we spoke basically a year ago, not quite to the day, but close. And that was a time when vaccines were beginning to be rolled out at a pretty rapid, but also radically uneven scale. And at that point, many people, including you, were saying loud and clear that by failing to vaccinate the world on the basis of need and not ability to pay, we are only opening the door for new variants to emerge. We're only extending the suffering. This was an issue of of justice, but also just of, of lunacy, right, to perpetuate our own suffering like this. And those predictions have turned out to be very much on point. Delta uh, and Omicron both emerged out of, or at least were identified in context with relatively low vaccination rates. Delta was identified in India at a time when I think only 3% of the population was vaccinated. Omicron, of course, was identified in South Africa. And these are countries where you have very strong ties. You, You live in Bangalore, you work in primarily in South Africa, India, and uh, Brazil. So those are countries we'll discuss. But to kick us off in this discussion, you know, what has happened in this last year since we spoke? And can you tell me about what those variants looked like from where you sit and how they, you know, confirmed your predictions? Gosh, Astra, yes, it's been a crazy year. And it's, it's, it's a crazy new year as well. The last three months of the new year have been crazy as well. What happened last year, the crudest summary I could provide of what happened last year is that we had this incredibly unequal rollout of vaccines that stayed that way almost until the end of last year. And it was only at the very end of last year that supplies to poor countries somewhat increased, partly due to the fact that there were a whole range of manufacturers outside of the West who figured out a way by which they could supply enough vaccines to other countries that the West wasn't reaching. And partly because by the end of last year, many Western countries were shamed as well into donating excess doses that they had bought and kept for themselves, which they weren't going to use. That in turn created another problem, which was a kind of logjam. And so several poor countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, received hundreds of millions of vaccine doses together, but all in the space of about about a month, about two months actually, between November of last year and January of this year, the number of vaccine doses that COVAX, this international philanthropic initiative, uh, was distributing around the world actually doubled. And it doubled because of these end-of-year vaccine donations from Europe and the United States, which was a really dumb thing to do because it's a bit like dumping six months' worth of food at the doorstep of a starving family who don't own a fridge. And so we're now in a situation where Vaccine supplies are possible. However, they're not really possible on the kind of predictable scale that poor countries need. And we're running up against distribution problems and ways by which those vaccine doses can get to the people who need them in these countries before they expire. But meanwhile, the world itself, in part because of Omicron, which is technically about the fourth variant of concern that came out in the world, because of its emergence in December, it created a kind of new metric for what fully vaccinated means. It created this rush for booster shots, which means that the new measure for being vaccinated is to have been fully vaccinated and to have got a booster shot. Sorry, and you mean new metric because the other vaccines are just, they're not effective against Omicron. So all of through last year, uh, our 
idea of a person who is fully vaccinated is somebody who had received one dose of a J&J vaccine or two doses of every other vaccine. Uh, however, even during last year, we realized uh, through the beta variant in South Africa, through the Delta variant in India, that each time one of these new variants came to the fore, vaccine effectiveness dropped. Uh, with Delta, it was actually quite significant and the effectiveness of all vaccines dropped, but they still sort of held their ground. What happened with Omicron, however, was uh, drastic and it, it completely changed the scenario. What happened with it is that it turned out that every vaccine, more or less, was very bad at protecting against transmission of Omicron. So they all helped against hospitalization and death, which was good. But because the mRNA vaccines from BioNTech and Pfizer and Moderna fell the least uh, with Omicron, they turned out to be about the only vaccines worth boosting with, which is why in the United States or in Europe, you can't get a non-mRNA booster vaccine. So all of the earlier vaccines that held their ground, like AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson, or even the Chinese and Indian vaccines, or really want to use any longer in terms of being something that you could boost with to protect yourself against Omicron. So after December 2021, when we knew Omicron emerged, there's really uh, no point in getting uh, a third dose or a booster dose of any other vaccine except for an mRNA vaccine. And the problem with that is that they are the world's most restricted vaccines, which are almost exclusively available to only in the richest countries in the world. Right. And so this this is hitting you personally. I mean, just to, to draw the point home, right? This is affecting you and your family and everyone else in India. Yeah, it's it's affecting me very personally and, and in some strange ways as well. I, the most obvious way, the one that I care about the most is, of course, the fact that my parents who are in their late 80s got a booster shot in India, but it was an AstraZeneca vaccine, which according to UK data, uh, provides them with exactly 0% protection against transmission of Omicron, which is not something to chill. The booster shots that are being given out in India, honestly, are a form of political theater. Uh, no other country is giving out these vaccines as boosters except us. And that's because we don't have any mRNA vaccines to give. I'd love my parents to get a better vaccine. The additional problem is that even I, I'm not even eligible, by the way, for a booster shot of the, the extremely ineffective AstraZeneca vaccine because of my age. And because I don't have a booster shot as of March 22nd this year, in a couple of weeks, I will cease to be considered fully vaccinated as far as the United States is concerned or Europe is concerned because my first two doses were more than nine months ago and I don't have a booster. And so, believe it or not, I actually can't walk into the World Health Organization or uh, the United Nations AIDS organization, which are two offices I visited about two weeks ago, uh, just in time, I suppose, uh, for uh, the kind of vaccination that I received, which is really odd, which means that the, the one of the world's premier bodies that is fighting for vaccine uh, equity will, in a couple of weeks, not allow me into its building because of vaccine inequity. Mm. And it's it's tempting, you know, I feel myself going towards the analogy or the comparison. OK, we're vaccinating children in the United States with mRNA vaccines, whereas, you know, your 80 year old parents 
are being denied access. But even to pit groups against each other is unnecessary. That's the point of this interview, right? And that the bottleneck in supply is artificial and that, that it doesn't need, there doesn't need to be this false scarcity. Um, but before we get into all of those mechanisms, I mean, how, what were the commitments of specifically the United States, but also Europe uh, in terms of these doses that you said they they then just you know dumped unceremoniously without really thinking about how to distribute them properly, you know have those commitments to distributing vaccines been met? Have they just been forgotten? You know how are how are in terms of just the minimum commitments that were made? You know what what progress has there been? Right from the start, there was a lot of hot air around the issue of distribution of vaccines, and the one thing that the United States and Europe did right off the bat, was to say that their donations, which, to be fair, were in the uh, multiple billions of dollars to the COVAX facility, this philanthropic consortium that's, that comprises of Gavi, uh, the Vaccines Alliance, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, essentially a bunch of Gates-funded enterprises that Bill Gates had a hand in creating and, and, and keeping alive. Well, yeah, one of the only maybe slight bright spots of the last year since we spoke is that Bill Gates has slightly fallen from grace. <laughs> in so many ways, Bill Gates has fallen from grace <laughs> in so many ways. It is, is really astonishing. It is astonishing, including you know his, self, his personal self, his organizations, and I think there's a real reckoning uh, in terms of this sort of slavish devotion to his predictions around vaccines and pandemics and this idea that listening to him was listening to the voice of God. But really early on in the pandemic, before he fell from grace, when his marriage was apparently intact and when his foundations were apparently the only thing standing between the third world and uh, the apocalypse, Western countries used his credibility, his assurances, which turned out to be completely false, to effectively hand over the issue of vaccine equity or how poor countries would get vaccines and get themselves vaccinated to Gates or the COVAX facility, which are, I think, roughly the same thing. No one questioned this, and people just did not question this enough, or people like me who tried to question it were shut down by saying, look, I'm not sure what you know. These are multi-billion dollar organizations with a proven track record run by reputable scientists who are working across the world. You know nothing. They will take care of all poor people. This was a unanimous line that came from whether it was the White House or from the government of the United Kingdom or Europe. And very, very quickly by March, when India banned exports of the AstraZeneca vaccine that was being produced at the Serum Institute, one company in India, it was clear that COVAX, this entire Gates-funded house of cards, had come tumbling down because they had nothing to distribute other than one vaccine being produced at one company in India. And then it turned out to be worse because it turned out that this entire, oh, you know, Gates will take care of the world through his brilliant organization's plan was so absurd that it consisted of having one vaccine being developed at one company in India at a quantity of roughly a billion doses in a year to be the sole source of supply, mind you, the sole source of supply to about half the world's population, including India, 3.9 billion people who, if they were all to be vaccinated, would need 8 billion vaccines. So even the plan to save the world, had it worked, which it didn't because India cut off exports 
due to our own surges here in the middle of the year, even had we not done that, we would have had about a billion vaccines in place, in place of the 8 billion that we needed for half the world. So it was an absurd plan to start with. Yes. And we should remind, you know, we, we covered a lot of ground in the last interview a year ago that's still relevant, but we should remind people that, you know, Gates and his minions played a key role in keeping an early vaccine out of the public domain and so has been very invested in maintaining these bottlenecks. What I want to get just one technical thing out of the way, and and you know, listeners might know this, but you this is essential to your argument. And this is that mRNA vaccines, the vaccines that now the world needs because of Omicron has changed the game, as you've pointed out, right? These are actually easier to manufacture than traditional vaccines. Can you say more about that? And why is that a critical point to the, the debate and the proposal that, that you're going to be laying out? This is this feels almost like a dirty secret, actually. Uh, and every time you read about mRNA vaccines until very recently in the press, it's been about how they're a scientific miracle, a technical miracle, uh, that they had never been made before, all of which are true. And then they're followed usually, these statements are followed with the implication that because they're so new and they're so innovative and never been done before, they actually can't be done outside the few facilities in North America and Europe that are producing them. And so they've always been put across as vaccines that really only the third world can have between a combination of how hard they are to produce and how difficult they are to store and administer because some of them earlier it was thought of uh, having uh, it, uh, some of them it, were were believed to require incredible free storage requirements which might not have been available and then it turns out that many of those things are untrue uh, it turns out that firstly yes they do require to be stored at temperatures that are are lower than for other vaccines but not quite as severe as they had themselves forecasted uh, meanwhile, the technology itself is rapidly evolving to be able to create what are called thermostable vaccines that can that can function in normal refrigerators. But then it turned out that the greatest secret that uh, a lot of this web of mystery uh, around mRNA vaccines was obscuring was the fact that they are not biological vaccines. This is a really obscure scientific difference, but it's really worth thinking about because if we thought of uh, pre-pandemic vaccines, prior to the pandemic, the only thing we knew as vaccines were biological vaccines. So they had to have cells grown and cultivated in yeast or in eggs. And this was a linear process. You couldn't make that go any faster, but also because you were handling these aspects of live biology, sometimes you were handling the actual pathogen that you were trying to inoculate against. You had to take all kinds of precautions and you needed really sophisticated laboratories and equipment and facilities. Now, it turns out that the mRNA process is something, uh, a digital versus analog situation when it comes to older vaccines, meaning that they managed to eliminate the part that requires the growing of cells and the biology. And what that means is that they are a hack they can be chemically synthesized through what's called routine biochemistry in a test tube, but the body recognizes them as biology. And what that means is that they're much, much faster to make. 
So this is days versus months uh, when we compare it even to a J&J or AstraZeneca vaccine uh, to make the same batch literally takes days versus months for the other vaccines. If you want to reformulate it, it's also much simpler and much faster to do um, because it's a bit like having, I suppose, an app on an operating system. So the mRNA or the messenger RNA technology is a platform. It works like sort of an operating system. And then you just fiddle around with the apps every time you want to design a new application on that platform. Uh, So for all of these reasons, it means that it's just much easier to make. And the fact is, unfortunately, as a result of that, there are more companies in India or in Brazil or uh, actually on the African continent who can make an mRNA vaccine, many, many more than can make any of the older vaccines. Exactly. That's the, the critical point. And I just want to dig into your point about the plat- your platform analogy. That means that once you have the capability to make this kind of vaccine, then you could extend that infrastructure beyond this novel coronavirus and its variants, right? In other words, you'd have the capacity hypothetically for all sorts of disease preventing and life-saving technologies. Exactly. Because so far, uh, vaccine production, the the, the thing that's made vaccine innovation and production hard is not only the discovery of something that works, but then uh, the figuring figuring out of how to mass manufacture it. So every step of the vaccine production process has been a bit of a nightmare. Whereas with mRNA, what it gives us is this really effective and useful platform for vaccines and pharmaceuticals in general. Moderna, for instance, has an HIV vaccine in trials right now. There are a range of different cancer therapies that people are looking at mRNA technology for. And there's a range of other future possibilities in which this could be used. So there is absolutely no doubt that going forward, there will be many, many more things that are many more apps on this uh, operating system, if you will. Right. And this this relates to a point that is also kind of central to the pieces you've been writing over the last two years now about how in terms of these bottlenecks that are artificially produced by intellectual property, by this imposed scarcity part of the pharmaceutical industry and the World Trade Organization and um, whoever our rivals are, right? But there's limits on intellectual property related to the vaccine itself and the technology are kind of what you're calling the platform. And you wrote two pieces uh, in The Atlantic, co-authored with with Chelsea Clinton, actually, and one was called The Vaccine Donations Aren't Enough. And in that piece, I just want to quote this because you give an example just to kind of help people visualize what we're talking about when we say that there is Uh, there are IP restrictions on the technology, you just use the example of bioreactor bags. And you say, these bioreactor bags are biological material, are bags in which biological material is grown and collected. They're essential to the production of vaccines, but can be bought only from a small market dominated by four firms, because the bags themselves have up to 2,800 patent monopolies protecting them. I mean, that's mind boggling. And then I assume that that's replicated in other aspects of the of the technology required. <laughs> it's completely insane. It is completely insane how at every at every turn of the production of any of these vaccines, uh, there are monopolies to be grappled with. This is a, a monster monopoly system, and with mRNA technology, there's uh, an additional monopoly that I think we have to uh, take very seriously which is sort of a platform monopoly. 
So let's take, let's say, the Apple iOS, right? I don't use Apple products. I use Linux. But for people who do, that, that's a monopoly. Uh, you can't just walk in there and put an app up on it unless you find a way to create a hack. Apple very zealously controls who can be on that platform and the rules of engagement to, to get on there. It's, it's both a legal um, and a literal monopoly. Now, the difference between Apple iOS and mRNA technology is that only one of them uh, will save your life from COVID and then potentially in the future from HIV and a range of cancers. And I think that we should be thinking about this a little differently. Uh, I mean, not that we shouldn't be thinking about breaking up Apple iOS, but there's certainly far more reason to care about the fact that you don't want a whole technology platform to be a monopoly of a couple of companies. But the second thing in the short run, Astra, is that what happens with vaccines is that they have the most unusual kinds of monopolies. And so the they have one set of monopolies, which are the kinds of things that I think more people understand, which are patents, intellectual property monopolies, like the ones on those bioreactor bags. But vaccines also have a de facto technology monopoly. And this is a really complicated thing to understand. But essentially what it means is that even if I was to successfully replicate a Moderna vaccine, let's say in India, I would not be able to get approval for it on the basis of equivalence because unless Moderna says that I followed every step that they followed and that they authorized this, it's not a Moderna vaccine and it wouldn't be considered equivalent. So the entire process of production, literally from start to finish, every one of the thousands of steps that Moderna involves to create its vaccine is part of a giant trade secret monopoly, which is uh, completely unshakable. You know, we have legal ways to overturn patents. I mean, not that we've actually used them or allowed them to be used in this pandemic, uh, astonishingly. But then we have this technology monopoly through trade secrets, which it turns out remarkably resilient and almost impossible to move or dismantle by any court of law or the White House, which actually funded, in Moderna's case, that monopoly into existence. It's kind of unbelievable. Yeah. And so I want to to highlight that we're going to talk about the ways that we can actually, that the, there are some mechanisms that you could theoretically challenge some of these patents. We'll talk about that. But one one thing related to the White House. So, okay, the White House funded these vaccines to the tune of billions of dollars, which is why when Americans go to the pharmacy and get the free shot, it's not really free. <laughs> you, you already paid for it. But the White House funded these, these life-saving vaccines. So we'll give them some credit there. But you know, it's important to say that the approach of the White House, and this goes for the Trump administration and the Biden administration, has been America first, right? That it's with you know more or less kind of overt nationalism on uh, uh, infusing it, uh, the Biden administration set out these COVID tests that were too little, too late, and only after being absolutely, you know, only after after being totally mocked for some press conference com- uh, comments, right, where the press secretary was like, "What do you want us to do? Send free tests in the mail?" And then people were like, "Yes, that would be a good thing." 
but one one moment that really did surprise me, and I want to hear your thoughts on it, is when the president, when President Biden came out in favor of a waiver of vaccine patents. So to, to your whole comment, you know, to your commentary about platforms and technology, it wasn't about waving IP across the board. But nevertheless, when I saw that, I thought that seemed pretty significant. And in fact, there has been, it seems to me, and I'm, I would love for you to say more about this, it does seem to me there's been some traction on this at the WTO, the World Trade Organization, as well. Uh, and before I let you respond, I just want to highlight then an, another great op-ed you wrote. This one was co-authored with Joseph Stiglitz, The Economist, and someone else. You mentioned that the World Trade Organization scheduled meeting to consider this temporary waiver of pharmaceutical intellectual property was actually postponed due to the emergence of the Omicron variant. In other words, precisely like, right, that prediction just coming through. If we don't get rid of these these roadblocks, these new variants are going to emerge. And there it is, shutting down the meeting at which to discuss this possibility. It's astonishing, Astra. Uh, so the World Trade Organization was supposed to meet uh, to to discuss the issue of vaccinating the world uh, in order to prevent new variants entering the world, which it then had to cancel because of a new variant that entered the world, including their world, and then astonishingly used the emergence of that new variant and the cancelled meeting to delay said vote and proposal to get the world vaccinated. I, I'm getting tangled up even in the contradictions. I can't keep up with them. But it was really astonishing. The, the World Trade Organization has been dragging its feet now uh, for about a year and a half, ever since this proposal was made. As well, now this month will be two years of the pandemic, officially. It will also be about one and a half years since a proposal was made to suspend these monopolies at the World Trade Organization. It has very little power. And when Biden in March last year uh, announced that he would be in favor of uh, some kind of temporary suspension of vaccine patents, it was a very good thing. And But that was a very long time ago. That was one year ago. And a lot has happened since then. And um, a brief summary of what's happened since then is roughly this, that there has been no progress on this waiver. And it is even today highly, highly unlikely that we will have a waiver of any useful kind. I was actually just in Geneva on work and I, I spent some time with the South African negotiating team, which is one of the co-proposers of this waiver on behalf of over 100 developing countries. The mood is bleak. The mood is bleak because, in part, this is in Switzerland, where the pandemic has been declared over. Uh, no one in the country wears a mask anywhere. There are no restrictions whatsoever, either for Swiss citizens and people or for people coming into the country or out. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be an appetite to, therefore, do anything about a problem that is officially over. And this is filtering into the waiver, waiver effort as well. The United States, actually, which made what is probably a politically pragmatic decision to make that announcement in March, has since followed it up with total silence or inaction, and then sprang back into action a couple of months ago to insist that this particular waiver proposal that they were discussing should be limited to vaccines alone, which, because of the complex monopolies on vaccines, 
meaning that because vaccines require something more than just the patents to be lifted, they require technology to be shared as well. The, the IP waiver is, in fact, least useful for vaccines, most useful for all of the different drugs that people would like to take when they have COVID but are in short supply, like Paxlovid, uh, a number of other antiviral pills that have been recommended across the world, which people uh, struggle to get during surges. The waiver is really good for things like that, where patents are, patents are the only thing that are blocking access to um, a treatment for COVID or the mass production of rapid tests, for instance, which might put more of them into American hands. And so bizarrely, the United States uh, is using the goodwill that it created last year to now insist that the waiver be expressly limited to the one thing that it's not very good for, which is immediate vaccine access, and that it should be not used for the two things that it would be very good for in the short run, which are COVID treatments and COVID tests. Right. And when you say tests, I mean, the cost of these tests here, I I think it's around $20 for two of them, but they cost, what, a dollar or something to manufacture. I saw something about it. I can't remember exactly, but that's... But they also literally, you know, in India, they literally cost about a dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, a home test in India uh, with results, a PCR test that delivers results on your phone in a PDF in, in four hours with someone coming over home to collect your sample is in the region of about $12 in this country. And so one of the ways in which you could measure how much you're paying for these things is by looking at what the price is in India, because it's closer to the marginal cost of production here than almost anywhere else in the world. The costs of tests are absurd. I I traveled for the first time to Europe after two years of not traveling anywhere. And of course, I had to get tested everywhere I went. And it was an incredibly expensive ordeal, which I could not believe after two years of having been closed off in India, where despite many problems that we have. I think one of the ones we don't is the fact that we have a competitive industry that produces these things at a slightly more rational cost. Yes. I mean, you know, when this is a little bit off topic, but I was kicking myself and didn't bring it up last time we spoke was that there are also just some other common sense rules in place there. For example, I think you said that a drug can't be advertised by its name brand or something like that, like other ways of keeping these absurd costs and, and marketing dynamics down. You know, for us, I think for me, the biggest culture shock when I studied in the United States as an undergraduate was this idea of pharmaceutical marketing. And it really, really confused me. Uh, This idea that for really complex diseases, right? I mean, we were talking about, we weren't talking about trivial things. We were not talking about lifestyle diseases. We were not talking about obesity. We were not talking about I, I don't even know what, not to make light of any you know, particular diseases, but we were not talking about simple conditions uh, that might require home remedies. We were talking about a range of different breathing problems or arthritis or, or cancers. And I was watching ads for them on TV where somebody was marketing me a pill or an injection and then asking me to ask my doctor about it. And I just thought, That's incredibly absurd. Uh, Why would I be better suited to ask my doctor about it than my doctor be the one to advise me to take it should I need it? I I just, none of that made any kind of sense to me. This idea that as a a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old, I would be in a position to understand what my choices 
in life were on the basis of an advertisement, especially for a really complex medical problem. It just made no kind of sense. And it never has to me. Even now when I see them, I'm, I, I find them really jarring because I feel almost like they are unnatural, that they, they really shouldn't exist. And that's because, unfortunately, I have grown up and live in an environment where they don't exist. Right. They are unnatural. They're the product of regulations or the lack thereof, right? And so they're absolutely, there's something that is the result of political decision-making and lobbying. Um, to the Going back to the, the patent waiver, so, you know, it's obvious that when you're talking about these inflated costs, you can see why industry does not want that. But there, there are plenty of so-called experts that are also going into the public sphere and doing battle with with you, <laughs> literally. Um, and we, you and this is something you and I have discussed because I see this a lot in the space. I spend a lot of my time organizing for debt cancellation, specifically right now focused on student debt cancellation. And every person, I mean, there is really basically no exception who is an expert with some sort of academic or think tank affiliation who is out there twisting the numbers and arguing that student debt cancellation is a bad idea. They're almost always funded by the student loan industry or a foundation that was ultimately funded with student loan servicer funds, or in some cases, the Koch brothers, you know, but but they go around massacre, they go around with the inventory of being neutral, objective experts. And you actually called out somebody for their affiliations uh, in an Al Jazeera debate. But do you want to just... Uh, do you want to just talk about that a bit and the fact that, yeah, there are people who are PhDs uh, taking pharmaceutical money and, and arguing against vaccinating the world effectively? This is a funny thing that happened last year uh, when I was invited to more of these debates with people who had different points of view, which I welcomed, actually, because it was a good way to test, I think, some of my own theories um, to make sure that they stood up you know, under my own scrutiny and others. And I did find that there were unexplainable positions that were being taken by a range of different academics. Um, these are people who, they weren't right-wing. So let me just clarify who these people are. So these are not people who work at the American Enterprise Institute or directly work for a pharmaceutical company. But that, I think, is what I found irritating, right? I think that when I'd almost more welcome someone who is proudly uh, an employee of Pfizer or Moderna or something to discuss this with because then it's very clear who they are and who I am. I, I don't take money from the pharmaceutical in industry, including the generic pharmaceutical industry, which my work has immensely benefited over the last uh, several decades. But what happens, I think, is this is commonplace in the United States. It's commonplace in Europe, um, is that uh, especially think tanks at universities, at really prestigious universities, like the Duke Global Health Institute, for instance, or a range of different Beltway institutions, like the, a number of organizations which have some kind of connection to the Gates Foundation or otherwise, but are well-established Washington organizations that are firmly entrenched in setting U.S. policy on healthcare, have a range of different funding sources that make them uh, unreliable narrat narrators of uh, the problem they're trying to solve. And in many cases, what's puzzling is that these sources of funding are actually available for anyone to see on their websites, but no one in fact checks. And what I got irritated by is the fact that I was debating 
people who had academic titles. So they always came with a professor or an assistant professor or a head of a center. They were at least, you know, PhDs in a scientific subject or they were medical doctors in addition to being a PhD. And they had this these imprimaturs of respectability, of academic success and authenticity. In the case of this one place, the Duke Global Health Institute, they were also being funded by three different vaccine manufacturers who had vaccines on the market. It just seemed absurd to me that the person who heads this center, who is surely responsible uh, in some or large part for uh, his continued existence and the existence of that center, uh, even at a place like Duke University, would honestly be able to say whatever he felt like against a company like Pfizer that was actually funding his institute. And it surprised me that nobody cared about this, that no one cross-checked this in terms of evaluating the funding and sources and conflicts of interest versus what was coming out of the mouths of many of these people. And and he was, by the way, uh, just one of many in this Duke Center that I mentioned is one of many, many people and centers who were similarly compromised. You know, the dean of the, one of the most respected public health school deans and the uh, head of the public health school at, at Brown University, uh, was, I think, called out for, again, having a somewhat narrowly liberal view, I suppose, on uh, what kinds of solutions existed, which was largely around this idea that vaccines are complicated. And yes, it's a terrible pity that no one can get vaccines around the world, but what can we do? They're all just so complicated and no one can make them. So it turned out that he was uh, someone who had served as a consultant for the Albright Stonebridge Group, which is this massively profitable consulting organization floated by Madeleine Albright, the former U.S. Secretary of State, uh, whose clients include companies like Pfizer, which he is surely likely to have, which he is likely to have consulted for because of his expertise in public health. And when called out on it, uh, decided to come up with the most unusual defense to say that he consulted with the Albright Stonebridge Group, which is a profit-making consultancy, uh, pro bono. <laughs> nothing like nothing like donating your time for good causes. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I mean, this question of who's an expert, I mean, what part of what's so frustrating about these dynamics, and I've been in these debates myself, you know, where I'm painted as the emotional, overly invested activist. And again, these are the neutral objective scholars, despite the fact that That's their work exactly is their work is being funded by an incredible vested interest. And I'm, you know, I am not. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I always think about how liberals, this is a tangent, but today are always decrying people's lack of trust in experts, and we should trust science and trust the experts. Meanwhile, but they're letting this incredible corruption go unremarked. So it's just, it's really frustrating. No, this is exactly true, Astro. This is exactly true. And look, you know, I don't set out at these debates or at anything else to to sound like an unhinged, hysterical <laughs> person, right? But then, occasionally, I get caught up in it, I suppose, and I can sound emotional. Uh, and I am then the crazy guy in a t-shirt mm-hmm. yelling mm-hmm. at his computer from India, while somebody else is the calm academic in a three-piece suit um, sitting by and wisely saying um, that, yes, it's very sad, but nothing can be done. And I also so deeply resent uh, what that picture says to anyone else watching uh, without this understanding of what lies beneath each of us. 
Exactly. They feel pretty calm because they're raking in those six-figure consulting gigs. What um so what are the proposals on the table? So the the proposal to to waive not just the patents but the larger regime of intellectual property is, you know, obviously you're saying that that even the the minor the minor statement that President Biden made has just gone nowhere. This is really a leading question. Tell me about the $25 billion proposal. Tell me what people, public health advocates in the U.S. are now advocating for and in a way settling for, and what are the problems with their proposals? There are a couple of things that have been happening around mRNA vaccines. So all of last year, we were helped, I think, by the fact that we did not have to rely on Western vaccines alone. Because the only Western vaccines that really got anywhere outside of AstraZeneca, which genuinely had a a different and unusually good business model where it had these licenses with companies in developing countries. And this, despite the Gates Foundation and and Bill Gates' intervention to try to curb early, there would have been even more AstraZeneca licenses, presumably had his wisdom not intervened really early on uh, at Oxford University. His wisdom, his wisdom that directed them to to not put the uh, technology in the public domain. His wisdom that directed them to go with the exactly his wisdom that directed them to go with a pharmaceutical company, and then the one that they went with in consultation with the British government was AstraZeneca, uh, and not just do this hippie thing of saying anyone in the world can make our vaccine because. You know, why not provide that advice? It's only a global yeah. pandemic. So I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, I, I, I just, out of words for Bill Gates, I think I've also, in my head, Astra, I've been fulminating about him and all of these people for so long, in a purely one-sided fulmination that I'm, I'm actually done. I've completely processed it. So now I can only laugh at Bill I have no anger left because I've had so much anger to process over the last year. So other than AstraZeneca, really, Western vaccines did very, very little for the non-Western world over several months of last year, uh, really almost right until the end. And when we take that into account, it means that what the world relied upon were effectively Chinese vaccines last year. Uh, Roughly half the world was vaccinated as a result of two different Chinese vaccines, and they were not donated. They were shared, and costs were shared, or they were bought, and they were made in quantities that other countries could buy them in, right? And this is pretty remarkable. What happened, I think, then with Omicron is that it rendered almost every non-mRNA technology obsolete. It not only rendered these these technologies obsolete, but we've actually seen how companies who made these vaccines themselves are scaling back on their own plans to produce, let's say, the J&J vaccine, which it's just literally stopped. The company has stopped producing its vaccine at at several uh, plants that it was producing them at. None of the companies other than the ones making an mRNA vaccine have announced that they will try to create a, a booster that deals with the Omicron variant. None of them have announced even that they will try to make kind of pan-variant or a bivalent vaccine that can protect against Omicron and more, right? So what it means in a way is that these companies are not putting out press releases like they used to about our vaccine, where we've got this in trials or, you know, we're working on this for the future. In part, I think, because they've understood that there is no Western market for their vaccine any longer because the entire 
Western market is now devoted to buying mRNA technology. And it's for good reason. And the good reason is that in the short run, we need a, an mRNA booster. In the very near short run, we'll need this um, Omicron or pan-variant mRNA booster or vaccine that comes to market. And this by this, I mean, in by, by near short run, I mean, in the next three to six months, we're likely to have uh, a much better way to deal with the Omicron variant, should it still exist and not be replaced at that point. And then we have all of the other really useful things that can come out of mRNA technology in a year from now, like the HIV vaccine, for instance, if it works. And so this focus on mRNA vaccines then turned into two different kinds of proposals, which I'm on the losing side of, actually. And and so I feel very, very strongly about a small subset of American activists. So I work with plenty of them and I, I write to them, I work with them, I'm talking to one of them. So don't paint all American activism uh, in one light. So, but a group of American activists, primarily people who work at a really uh, vibrant nonprofit called Prep for All, which I admire very much, uh, and Public Citizen, have backed a proposal which I don't understand, which is to have the U.S. government spend a varying figure that goes between, I think, 10 or 15 or $25 billion to effectively buy mRNA vaccines for the rest of the world, including people like my parents. And it's been around as a proposal, I think, since early last year, but it began to gain more traction um, towards the end of last year around the same time as a colleague of mine um, who's um, Syrian and lives in France. His name is Alain Al-Salhani. He works at uh, MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières. Around the same time that he and I worked on an exercise to see how else we could increase the way mRNA vaccines were produced, right? Uh, so, So if we thought of mRNA vaccines and that platform as something that the world needed, we wanted to see how we could then get that to the world. And then going back to the fact that mRNA vaccines are easier to produce, what we found to our surprise was that there were over 100 companies in Asia, Africa, and Latin America combined who could make these vaccines. And then these were only the companies who had satisfied the highest quality standards, who had exported the same kind of product to the US, to Europe, or to the WHO. Um, So in effect, actually, there are several hundreds of companies who can do this, right? But we chose really only the very uh, top layer of these companies to report. And what we suggested is that Moderna, a company like Moderna, which has never had its own facilities, Moderna is now a multi-billion dollar company, but effectively it's a biotech startup in an office suite in a suburb of Boston meaning that it's never had factories that it owns. It's never had the kind of experience that Pfizer's had with twisting governments and society's arms and therefore has been trailing Pfizer. And so what we proposed was as a way to catch up, Moderna licensed these companies that we had identified to produce the same vaccine on commercial terms. And so it's less money, but it's more money than they have. We have... Uh, 1.3 billion people in this country. Presumably, there's a market for about 2 billion Moderna mRNA vaccines if they could be produced here. And even at a couple of dollars each of 
revenue that Moderna stands to earn on them. That's still, you know, I don't know, four, five, six billion dollars more than they're currently earning from India. And we thought as a way, as a sure shot way to get these vaccines here as quickly as possible, to get the technology here as quickly as possible so that it stays, so that it's used, you know, for all of the things that are going to come out into the future. Uh, it's a better idea to do that, especially given that it can be made in five different countries in the African continent alone, right? Uh, three different countries in Latin America, which means that really more or less every single continent, every single region of the world could have a way to robustly defend itself now and in the future with mRNA technology instead of having the United States pay for everything. Yes. And so to just draw the distinction, I mean, in both proposals are not imminent, right? So you said you were in the losing proposal, but but it's not that the other proposal, we should be clear, it's not it's not like it's about to to uh, be implemented right away. But the broad differences are, the first one basically keeps that concentration of technological capabilities in the hands of Moderna and in the hands of this, this company and use, and the proposal is to use US taxpayer dollars whether it's 10, 15, 25 billion dollars to just pay the company and then kind of in a charity model uh, distribute those vaccines instead of saying license the vaccine and the technology sure at a at a you know at a lower cost but still not on the model of charity using the market right and then you not only use all of this manufacturing capacity that's latent you then set other countries up to actually be able to respond to whether it's further iterations of this pandemic or other diseases down the road. And so it breaks out of that that charity model that has so failed us uh, to this point, right? Completely. Astra, first, I should just admit that uh, the, the battle between different solutions to vaccinating the world with mRNA uh, is a battle of losers, I suppose, because no one's won anything <laughs> at all whatsoever. And so we're fighting over, I guess, which proposal failed better at this stage. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I'm making light of it, of course, but I think that when I, I'm certainly hoping that uh, the proposal that we floated still has a chance. And in fact, I'm still in discussions around it. And so I, I really do hope that there is a way that we can still salvage something out of this uh, wreck. But I think for me, when I started working with a group of different American activists. It became very clear to us that the the, the best solution prior to me and Allah identifying companies that could produce these mRNA vaccines around the world, it did seem very, very clear that the not just the best solution, but the only solution is getting the world to vaccinate itself. We saw how charity did not function in the pandemic. And we know how, with several decades of experience, uh, charity can set up uh, really bad recursive models of dependence and abandonment and is not really healthy for anyone, even when it's willing. Now, there was no sign, however, in the pandemic that there was a willingness to invest tens of billions of dollars, for instance, honestly, from the same administration that grudgingly sent out, I think, what is it now, two or four tests, uh, rapid tests per family after having been shamed into doing so. So the willingness of the Biden administration even to vaccinate my parents in perpetuity 
it just seemed like a strange proposition to me. It really did not make any kind of sense whatsoever. And the second problem, I suppose, is that my parents don't need, essentially, the the $500 or, or, or whatever it is that it's going to cost every taxpaying family like yours. And now, of course, I'm middle class, my parents are middle class, but the government of India doesn't need this money as well. We have a treasury. Poor countries have have money at, at some central location. And, and in this pandemic, by this time, I think all have figured out how necessary it is to use that money finally towards something useful like vaccines for COVID. So money is not the problem that we're trying to solve for here. We're trying to solve for the ways in which we can append this artificial blockade in the production of these vaccines. And the only way that we can do that without having to go back and beg for things every so often is then to send that around the world, right? To distribute the solution to all of the places that need it. And so it did strike me as absurd that I was competing in this battle of losers as to how to save my family, you know, with a group of really well-intentioned, but certainly misguided, uh, this handful of American activists uh, who I had to contend with. But I think it also insulted, <laughs> it insulted me. And I think I felt humiliated on many occasions when, um, because for a couple of months, it was the only proposal on the table I did find actually that a range of different people who I genuinely admire and I've worked with activists like uh, Peter Staley, who was an act up and um, a range of other academics at Yale and so forth, who I think did and continue to genuinely believe in this proposal as being something that's uh, just and moral and expedient and the one that's right for the world. And I think it does annoy me today, even so that even today that something so obviously absurd in the sense that I have never come across something that is both impossible as well as unfeasible. Um, so this idea that the White House at this moment in time, with everything else that it has in terms of domestic pressures and other foreign policy objectives, especially in this time, would devote $25 billion to effectively setting up a vaccine factory to run for the world. And then the the prospect of that the only thing worse than that solution not working out is it actually working out. And then, you know, in two years, uh, having to somehow beg for my parents' vaccines from, I don't know, the Trump administration or something. Yes, exactly. I mean, that, you know, solution is a very, uh, it's an unlikely one and a very unstable one, given the political realities in the United States. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. 
first-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digjacobin, all in lowercase. You know, we've kind of hit on them, but dig into what some of the sort of obstacles are here. I mean, you've definitely mentioned the kind of imperialist mindset, right? This idea that, well, only we can do this and we can do it right. That, that you know, some people probably are expressing almost unconsciously, right? Just a kind of assumption about American technological and manufacturing superiority, even though so many of the drugs people take every day are actually manufactured in India, you know, just that we're buying at pharmacies and stuff like that. Uh, but also, if you could talk about what's like what is threatening to these companies because they're there you know I mean it seems like there's a capitalist argument here right it's like license this, this technology extend your uh, manufacturing footprint and you're printing money <laughs> you know yeah sure the prices aren't at the max you could charge but I mean this is again not, not a charity model so what are they afraid of losing control uh, slippery slope what what is it here this is such a fascinating question. And so last year, I think the answers are also different depending on when you consider what time you're considering. Last year, for instance, I think a company like Moderna, let's take Moderna because it's a really interesting example. It's American, you know, you're American. And I think most people who listen to this are American. And so I think it's really instructive to understand how a company like Moderna has operated over the last year. So they're a company that effectively the U.S. taxpayer created through federal subsidies that came through White House, uh, Operation Warp Speed, and BADA, which is the department that funds biotech um, in the private sector in the United States. And they did extraordinarily well with their vaccine. And all of last year, for instance, the reason that they would not have wanted to engage with anyone anywhere in the world, including, by the way, countries who just said, we want to buy your vaccine and we're willing to pay you $10 more per dose than anyone else, like Botswana said. The reason they weren't able to engage with anybody outside, even for purely commercial orders, is that they were booked up. They had just been booked up and bought out early on. And like with every other company, they scrambled to figure out how to make more doses of their mRNA vaccine because, as you said, this is a way of, if it, this is just printing money. I mean, they knew that, you know, there were uh, 10 options uh, to sell any vaccine that rolled off their shelves anywhere in the world, right? So they scrambled to put together as many, to put out as many vaccines as they could, and they ramped themselves up. But pretty much through all of last year, because of the ways they had been funded and because of the ways vaccines had been ordered in advance of their creation by Europe and the United States and a handful of other rich countries, it meant that they all they did was fulfill the past orders on their books. And so it's really only towards the end of last year that they could even think of expanding and finding ways to service other countries. Sometimes this coincided with the drop in demand, a perceived drop in demand from rich countries, which I think signaled to them that therefore then they could continue the same kind of business model and make quite as much money simply by just moving on to a different class of customer, right? Middle income countries, let's say, like Latin America, or Eastern Europe and so on. 
But then it was slightly complicated by the fact that the Omicron variant in December spurred an enormous interest in booster shots. And so what it meant was actually that Western demand was not quite done yet and that there were going to be several hundreds of millions more doses that were going to be required to boost every person who lived in a rich country. And so that then presented a continuing market for them. And they're probably at the stage now where they can think of servicing, not necessarily producing in developing countries, right? But the problem I think that they have is that they want a secure legal environment. They want to deal with a company like Rovi, who they have outsourced production of their vaccine to in Spain, which is a company that's never made a vaccine or a biologic, again, because mRNA uh, is simpler and doesn't require you to have that experience. So Rovi is producing hundreds of millions of doses of the Moderna vaccine. And what we're essentially saying is here are 100 companies just like Rovi, better than Rovi. In fact, some of them are bigger and they've done more. Um, So why don't you just license them as well? And that way, you'll be able to make tens of billions of doses of these vaccines and then they'll go out. And I think for them, they're just a little concerned with the more risky political environment. Roby is in Spain. Spain is in Europe. Uh, they know that their contracts, for instance, in Europe will do will hold in exactly the way that they want them to hold. They know that they have probably contractual language that would make sure that Roby can't become a competitor to them. And they know that Europe will uphold uh, that language in, the, in their contracts. They know that Spain is unlikely to turn around tomorrow and say, listen, we're having a bit of a surge or, you know, we want to help Latin American countries. So, in fact, we're just going to take over all your vaccines and buy them or something. But, you know, you won't have any access to them. But they know that that has happened in India and it could again or that it could happen in a sub-Saharan African country or in another South Asian country. So I think that there is a kind of political uncertainty and risk that they don't want to handle. And then to top it off, they've got to have this more difficult and risky negotiation in order ultimately to earn less on their vaccine. Because if they tried to charge the same price as they're charging Europeans, you know, they, they understand that this would be a public relations disaster, right? And so that's now really why when Moderna can begin to think about the rest of the world, they're unsure about how to think about supplying their products to the rest of the world. You know, maybe, do you want to say anything about this idea that, you know, India could do X, Y, or Z and has done this in the past? I mean, what's the point of being a sovereign nation if you can't say, hey, we're going to manufacture life-saving medicines for our citizens? But there has been some movement on using, and we, we talked about this at the beginning of the interview, there are technically, theoretically, ways that countries can push against this regime. And there's been some interesting movement in Brazil. Do you want to talk about that? So this, to me, Brazil is just one of the most fascinatingly contradictory places on the planet. And and I say this coming from India, which is, I think, honestly, the biggest compliment one can give another country in terms of you know, where you where you rank in terms of fascinating contradiction. Uh, but Brazil, of course, famously is run by uh, a person, you know, widely considered to be completely insane, who ran the country aground during the pandemic, who, in fact, whose own Senate recommended charging him with crimes against humanity 
for the loss of life of Brazilians during the pandemic based on his inaction and his distaste for it. And at the same time, while the government that's led by Bolsonaro has made horrible sounds internationally and has done nothing useful, they, they opposed the other developing countries wanting pharmaceutical monopolies waived, they've done nothing useful. Right. They, they, haven't had, they haven't had solidarity with people at the same sort of economic strata. I mean, with other countries, they've... No, yeah. not at all. Actually, Brazil used to be a linchpin. Brazil used to be a linchpin of the sort of international third-worldist movement. India, Brazil, and South Africa, uh, and briefly along with China and Russia in other times, were considered to be this economic vanguard. But Brazil completely dissociated itself from those third-world connections in Bolsonaro's regime, both literally as well as philosophically, and very much aligned itself, I think, with Bolsonaro's own vision of who he was and what Brazil was, which was a country much more in the image of uh, Donald Trump. But the thing with Brazil is that makes it fascinating is that they have a rich, unbroken tradition of very invested bureaucracy, as well as um, a history of independent political movements and parties, many of whom have successfully elected people to both houses um, uh, of parliament. And what Brazil did was a couple of months ago in September of last year, they said, look, it's been a year now. It had at that time was about a year since they, Brazil, uh, since the WTO had been considering this proposal to waive pharmaceutical monopolies. And they then stated the obvious, which is that India and South Africa all of these other countries that are asking the WTO to say, look, we want to waive monopolies for a while because this is a pandemic, actually already have the right to do that. And the only reason that they're asking for this to be sanctioned by the WTO, so effectively asking the WTO to say, yes, it's okay to do what you are always allowed to do, is so that they're not... When you say they are allowed to do this, this is because of a clause in TRIPS that enables the protection of security interests. Exactly. So this is obscure Article 73. Uh, For those following this, uh, the the, the entire infrastructure of these trade rules, by the way, is so uh, bizarrely uh, complex and unnecessarily arcane. But there is is a very clearly embedded uh, trade rule in TRIPS, which allows countries total and full flexibility for any kind of extraordinary emergency, which they can decide and define for themselves. It's just that it's never been used. You know, it's like a bunch of kids who the young kids want to play on the same playground as the big kids, and it's their right to, but they know that they can't. And this is how the world has functioned at the WTO until now. There are all of these things that we know we can do, we just know we can't, right? And so now what they did, in the, the equivalent of what they're doing now is to go to the principal to ask for a note to step out onto the playground because it's a pandemic, right? And Brazil, I suppose, is one of those countries which decided not to be one of those kids, but to step out onto the playground anyway because it's a pandemic. And guess what? They were able to essentially suspend monopolies themselves using these well-established laws that they are signatory to, like, everyone else's, and no one's objected. I mean, there were moments of protest at the beginning, but, you know, have you heard of this? No. You know, people, nobody's actually going after them for doing what they were always legally allowed to do. And so it is a bit absurd that India and South Africa are so 
satisfied about, you know, sitting back on their haunches after trying to have these monopolies waived for one and a half years, instead of just going out and doing the same thing themselves. Fascinating. It's so fascinating. As every yeah. country should. Yeah. As every country should, honestly. Right. Any any country who's a, a signer to this has has this ability. And Bolsonaro didn't veto it, right? Like he, he ultimately signed it with a few rollbacks of details here and there. Yeah, this is a this is an awful story, but I'm going to just have to tell it. Yeah. But Bolsonaro did actually try to veto it. And what he instead did was he cut out two elements of it. Um you remember I was talking about how vaccine technology is a monopoly in itself. And so the Brazilian law went even further than what the IP waiver, monopoly waiver, the WTO was asking for, and actually asked for those trade secrets to be deposited in exchange for monopoly protection, right? So that it, they, those trade secrets could then be shared if necessary. Bolsonaro cut that out, but unbelievably, and, and I, I promise you, some, like there are so many times that I feel like I am Alice in Wonderland. This, I, I assure you, just is, it, it tops it all. Like, this is just, this is the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. So Bolsonaro also cut out another clause that actually uh, switches on this law in an emergency or in a pandemic. So Brazil, so Brazil now has uh, a monopoly uh, waiver law that it can use in a pandemic with the sections on how it defines that pandemic and how it puts it into place taken out of the law. And so nobody knows how to turn it on. And that's one of the things they're trying to fix back in the Senate. Sorry, it's just... Wow. Okay, so when when we advise other countries to, do the, to, to follow Brazil's lead, we are not advising them to take that specific route. <laughs> just don't take the switch out. Yeah. <laughs> So dig a bit more, you know, as we wrap up, uh, you know, into the international dynamics here, right? We're, we're ta- it's, a, it's a multipolar world. You've been really at the fore, you know, um, through your work with Progressive International and just your long work as an advocate in this space, you're building coalitions beyond borders. You know, what is it that we should understand about the sort of international dynamics here and uh what are some of the common misunderstandings that we need to abandon? The first thing I'd like to say, Astra, is I think that I realized this really early on. I'm, I'm not sure as many Western activists who work for the world realize that uh, simultaneously, but it was very clear to me really early on that uh, there is a philanthropic industrial complex and it is uh, ha- it is bent towards imperialism, uh, meaning that the even in... Uh, the areas of global justice seeking and whatnot, or the kinds of uh, things that I do or that you do, there are massive, massive divides in terms of uh, who has power and who has a say and so on, especially when uh, the solution is in the hands of governments like the United States, etc., or other rich Western countries. And so I think that there has to just be a better way for uh, someone like me who is trying to work on this problem, but is also actually is the problem, meaning that who is experiencing that problem, to be able to articulate solutions to people who hold the keys uh, to this problem uh, without necessarily having to have interlocutors or... uh, It's just not clear to me why, if the American government wants to solve a problem in sub-Saharan Africa or in South Asia, 
uh, they wouldn't maybe discuss this more with people in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia. Um, and I do think that there is a way by which uh, people really do have to understand uh, what they can do in a connected world and, and get beyond this idea of then having to uh, rely solely on the advice of the person uh, who is most uh, geographically uh, close to you. I, I, I find it really idiotic, actually, and humiliating. And I think it's an enormous waste of time. And I don't, I, I really don't fully understand it. Uh, but the idea, for instance, that this would work in reverse, that like, if I, for whatever reason, let's say an Indian company was doing something very bad in Texas or something like that, and I was trying to solve that problem in Texas, the idea that I guess I could do this without speaking to a single person in Texas really does seem ludicrous, right? That I really wish, wish, wish that um, other people could see this. But I'm a child of the Cold War, Astra, and I grew up uh, in India at a time when uh, my first rock concert was Soviet. I, I, I went to a stadium to hear uh, Ala Pugacheva, this Soviet songstress, uh, who I didn't fully understand actually was Russian propaganda at the time, but just so excited to be you know, at anything like a rock concert. Uh, she sang in Russian, which I don't understand a word of, but I really loved it. Uh, the first, I think, ballet performance I ever saw was the Bolshoi. It was, it cost, I think, you know, about a dollar and a half or something. Uh, children's books were Russian and so on. So there was a heavy dose of Soviet propaganda, which for me, I, I never took seriously. It was simply a, a facet of growing up. And I have some kind of sentimental removed attachment, you know, to to those things as sort of objects of my childhood but none for hardline Soviet communism. But at the same time, I think a somewhat unusual understanding then of different circuits in the world, maybe more so than some maybe who was raised in the West, no? Because I feel like we had a, a longing for and then an understanding of what the Western circuit was and then this very close and instinctive understanding of what the other side looked like. And then that followed me in through last year into looking at vaccines when it became so clear to me that the Cold War and this idea of Cold War thinking um, of geopolitics of sort of, you know, great power clashes was following us all the way through the pandemic, really all the way through. And it was in the most unexpected ways, I think. So uh, I think the first thing, when we think of the United States and Europe as great powers, who I think don't fully understand what their place is in a changed and reorganized world, it strikes me as, as almost an admission of defeat that to cement their place as world powers, all they had last year was mostly good press releases and a little bit, bit of uh, good rhetoric rather than any actual action, while China, which is, of course, made its ambitions clear in terms of where it wants to be on the world stage, did quietly, and I think in the face of uh, staunch opposition uh, from liberal Western media, managed to vaccinate half the world. And this is not really to say anything about the Chinese state or you know the European Union or the American state, because that is not the point of this. But the point of this is to compare, I think, the the stated ambitions of great powers and their ability to deliver on that ambition. And a case in point, I think, in terms of how we failed is Russia, uh, especially in the context of what Russia is doing now. Uh, I found it really fascinating that Russia 
invested in creating a COVID vaccine really early. So this was August of 2020. I faced a lot of flack for it. I then wrote about Chinese and Russian vaccines in March with a colleague uh, and faced a lot of flack for doing so myself. However, at the time, they were the Russian and Chinese vaccines, the most viable non-Western COVID vaccines that were available to countries who had been frozen out of the Western vaccine system. And it was a significant development. I mean, all of Latin America, a large part of Eastern Europe, large parts of uh, the Middle East were all turning to these two countries to get their vaccines, except only one of them succeeded. China did, but Russia failed. And not in the way, again, that they were suspected of uh, failing, meaning that the vaccine it was purportedly good in the sense that they had peer-reviewed reports in respectable medical journals like The Lancet, which confirmed their very, very good efficacy. The problem was that they couldn't figure out how to make it. And they embarked on this incredibly ambitious program where they enlisted 34 vaccine companies around the world, where they publicly stated that the Russian COVID vaccine was going to be the Linux of vaccines, that it was free. It was like free software. And so they signed up anybody who wanted to make it. And I spoke to some of these companies in India who had signed up for this license and got one. Uh, These are small companies. They invested millions of dollars in the vaccine only to find in about July or August last year that the vaccine was not manufacturable. So it's one thing to have a technology that works, but it's another thing to be able to mass manufacture it, which is another one of these layers of complication when it comes to vaccines. And Russia completely failed at, at fixing the problem or addressing the problem or even acknowledging the problem. Uh, it threatened many of the people who it had given these licenses to of litigating them out of existence if they complained about it. So all I had were these uh, off-the-record statements that I I couldn't necessarily use. But the vaccine has completely disappeared. And I think it's, uh, to me, uh, a really fascinating metaphor for, I think, the 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 reality and the fantasy of Russia's great power ambitions in this world. And it's something that I, I can't help think about in this moment when they're invading Ukraine. And then the final part of this Cold War puzzle, uh, and the most interesting part of it is Cuba. And I know that, I think, look, for people like you and me, and uh, for a lot of us, you know, there is there is a leftist romantic version of Cuba. You no, know? uh, I, I, I grew up reading uh, you know, these Asterix and Oblix comics, which... Uh, the Asterix and Obelix are from the embattled village of Gaul, uh, which is a holdout, I think, against maybe Napoleonic Europe or France. But I, I guess we often think of Cuba like that as this whole sort of holdout island, and there is a sort of romance associated with it. And I don't want to do that thing here. I feel their success at vaccines and the story that they've had there, I think, deserves actually more than a romantic treatment. They developed two vaccines last year. They are both they were both protein subunit vaccines, which was sort of the best kind of non-mRNA vaccines you could get. One was called Soberana Dos, one was called uh, Abdallah. And uh, in June of last year, at around the time that both of these vaccines exhibited uh, excellent numbers in terms of the efficacy at uh, during trials in Cuba, I chaired a summit uh, organized by Progressive International, our friends there, with Karina Vance-Mafla, who uh, is a former health minister of Ecuador, where we had, among others, the Cuban health minister, the deputy health minister, 
who told us the most incredible story of the Cuban vaccines. And she said that the way in which her department had been given permission to work on Cuban vaccine, on these vaccines, was on the basis that they would not divert money from the food budget. Proceeded on that basis and created two excellent vaccines that worked. Immediately, they turned around and offered them to the entire world. I mean, they offered them to the entire world in front of me at a closed-door meeting with other health ministers from Argentina and uh, Mexico, uh, Venezuela, Brazil, um, I guess a whole lot of uh, Latin American leftist governments. And in response, what we heard from the world was uh, crickets, literally just crickets. Um, I think the, there is a Cuban vaccine partnership in Vietnam. There's another one in Iran. And I don't think anyone else, I, I'm connecting some people in India to the Cuban vaccine manufacturers. But I, I, you know, I don't think anyone else even took them up. And I continue to follow up a bit with uh, what the Cubans were doing on this. And I think the most astonishing thing about this is that I think people are scared to even acknowledge that Cuba exists, let alone that they have vaccines that they were willing to license to absolutely anyone in the world. Um, and it does frighten me a little, I think, that we've built a world where it's not that even we are consciously refusing help from Cuba to save the planet, but that we can't even actually see it. As we've been discussing, Omicron and the need for these mRNA boosters has changed the game. But if you ignore the <laughs> that plot twist and you compare Cuba's intervention to Bill Gates, right, it couldn't be more stark. You know, that, that these are two totally different models, but one got all of the oxygen, all of the publicity, all of the attention and hero worship, and the other one is being being ignored. Um, and it, it certainly doesn't bode well for a world whose health and well-being depends on uh, global cooperation. And so just in case we haven't scared our listenership enough, I, I you know, I, I think it's important to talk about what the last two years mean as we look towards a future with even more crises on the horizon, I mean, definitely future pandemics, uh, not just uh, COVID, but there you know, are all sorts of pathogens waiting to cross the species barrier <laughs> and, and into our bodies and to do God knows what, but also climate change. And so I'm just wondering what your, what your thoughts are on that, you know, what your sort of big picture takeaways are as we look beyond the year 2022. You know, when the pandemic was declared to be one, the, all of these things were very clear, that this was a viral pandemic that was going to affect every corner of the known world, that this was something that was not really going to be, that the coronavirus pandemic was not going to be something that rich countries could easily insulate themselves from in the way that you sometimes can, and, and these countries often have with money, uh, when it comes to other diseases, let's say, which are less communicable or not viral. All of these things are things that we knew going into it in March, right? And there were feeble, really well-spirited efforts, one of them by the WHO, for instance, to figure out how to distribute the first few vaccine doses. We talked about how, of course, the scarcity of vaccine doses is an artificial problem, but at least for the first few months that vaccines were available, they were a problem because there were just very few people who had got their act together to make them and so on. And so, you know, even with the first thousand or a million or 10 million doses, there's always a question of uh, who should get them. 
And the answer is different when you look at it at a planetary level and different, of course, when you look at it um, from the perspective of ultranationalism. So instead of saying, for instance, let's make sure that everyone who is above 80 and has a comorbidity or is recovering from cancer gets one of these vaccines, uh, we said, let's just make sure that every country who has them or funded them gets them. And there was a kind of secession from what was not just the kind of moral planetary response that was required, but also the the strategic and the very real planetary response that was the only response possible to a global viral pandemic, where I think all countries, really, and it's easy to blame the rich countries who who did this because they had the money to and uh, they they had the resources to be able to to actually shut themselves off and go at these things on their own. But really, it's hard to imagine other countries behaving differently if they were in the same position. And this idea, we often think, I think of ultranationalism as being connected to fascism or uh, being something that is this exceptional moment when the state turns into a, a creature that is is not very good to the the people that it's designed to be protecting. Whereas I think ultranationalism as a as a 21st century emotion, as a as a more expansive idea, is something like what we saw play out in the pandemic, which is this deliberately illogical counterintuitive way of staging a kind of domestic political theater of we're doing this for you. You pay us taxes. We serve you, right? Which is, is should be clear, I think, to anyone who lived through Delta in the United States or lived through or suffered through Omicron over the last couple of months. Should be amply clear to anyone in South Korea or Hong Kong, two places that are completely reeling from Omicron at the moment with just staggering caseloads. Should be clear, I think, to any of the countries in Northern Europe, you know, countries like Germany and Austria and the Netherlands, which went into this insanely late lockdown last year prior to Omicron. So this was October and November, and there were riots on the streets and so on because, you know, everyone was completely fed up. So how. I think it is possible, I don't understand, for us to think about this moment without doing the full accounting of why we understood the contours of this problem and we understood the kind of collective planetary response it would require and then we failed to execute it to a T. Right. I mean, we, we perfectly failed to execute it. I mean, it's not even that we missed it. Right. The United States and Europe funded COVAX, the Gates institutions that were supposed to vaccinate the world with billions and then spent tens of billions to undercut vaccine access to that initiative and get it first. So it, it does seem really astonishing for us to be able to do anything in the future without a full accounting of what we did in this pandemic. And I think, honestly, if this was a trial run for the climate crisis, there's really only one answer, and that is that we failed. Achal Prabhala, 
it is always so interesting, uh, not always encouraging, but also sort of encouraging at the same time to talk to you. I thank you truly for all the work you do and have done on this issue. And it was an honor and a pleasure to have you on The Dig. Thank you very, very much, Astra. Chal Prabala has been a public health activist for a long time, starting in South Africa, where he worked for the country's largest trade union federation. He now lives in India and runs the Access IBSA project, which campaigns for access to medicines in India, Brazil, and South Africa. In addition to research, advocacy, and writing, he is also currently working on two things, access to coronavirus vaccines and a documentary on the arc of the global movement for access to life-saving medicines, from AIDS in South Africa at the turn of the century to the pandemic today. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer, and last but not least, The Dig's go-to guest host. She is the director of multiple documentaries, including What is Democracy? And her latest book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. She co-founded The Debt Collective, a union for debtors. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the rent of the land is established as a result of the struggle between tenant and landlord. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel, Gemma Sack, and Mariel Solomon. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please do take one moment to leave us a nice review and rating. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But really, what really does that is you telling your friends, real life, on the internet, wherever, to listen to this podcast. Why you like it, why they'll like it, and whatnot. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.